We continue this morning in our journey through the Gospel of Mark this winter. And if you were here last week or had a chance to catch up with worship online, you know that we're starting every Sunday at the beginning, that is, the beginning of Mark's Gospel. It's really our homework assignment together to memorize Mark chapter 1, verse 1, because it will be our framework for each week. Do you remember from last week? See if you can say it with me. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That was pretty weak. <laughs> Let's try that again together. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's awesome. Uh, this last week, Pastor Brent was reminding me that in Mark's gospel, that's really the whole Christmas story. You know, we don't get those beautiful narratives of Matthew and Luke or uh, the poetry of the Gospel of John. In Mark, that's it for the Christmas story. We can only imagine that in Mark's church, their Christmas pageant was pretty boring. <laughs> Just one seven-year-old girl, I imagine in an angel costume, tromping out onto the stage and then squaring herself up and proclaiming, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the end. <laughs> Parents with their cell phones videoing going, wait, what? That's it? Yeah, that's it. That's the whole Christmas story, at least according to Mark. And yet, while it doesn't make much of a pageant, it is a wonderful framework for us as we then explore what that means. What is the good news for us? And so we'll continue that journey together this morning in Mark chapter 4, Beginning in verse 1, listen to God's word for us today. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into the boat on the sea and sat there while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Jesus began to teach them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen. Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain." But other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, let anyone with ears to hear listen. I'm going to skip ahead a bit and pick up at verse 30. Jesus also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs, and puts forth large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, for you alone are our rock and our redeemer. And let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. 
Last Sunday, we were in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus also gathered such a large crowd in a home where he was teaching that they blocked the windows and the doors, so much so that a group of friends, neighbors perhaps, of a man paralyzed couldn't even bring him in. So they climbed up on and tore a hole in the roof and lowered him down to be healed. But rather than a simple healing, Jesus instead begins by forgiving his sins, raising lots of questions and concerns, especially among religious leaders. Who is this guy, and what authority does he have to forgive sins? And thus begins a journey through chapters 2 and 3 of Mark, in which there are several confrontational encounters between Jesus, religious leaders, and others. They're wondering who this rebel is, who's challenging the law of Moses and their religious practices, and is more importantly challenging the carefully compromised relationship between the religious leaders and their Roman occupiers. This guy is rocking the boat. Eventually, they begin to question not only the message, but even the messenger himself. He's gone mad, some people say. Others claim that perhaps he's possessed by or working on behalf of the devil himself. It gets so bad by the end of chapter 3 that his own family, his mother and his siblings, come to call him out. I suspect to try to intervene. Jesus, what are you doing? You're causing all kinds of trouble. You've got to dial it down a little bit. And maybe it's because of this we don't know that at the beginning of chapter 4, he now shifts his approach a bit. He goes from his teaching and lots of healing now to storytelling in parables. And we know that at their best, stories or parables like other forms of art can wonderfully open up a space for understanding and interpretation, for a wide variety of perspectives and life experiences, for some reflection and dialogue together. And we imagine and hope that that is Jesus' intent as he begins to tell this story. Listen, he says. He wants to get their attention now. Listen, those who have ears to hear. And then he begins with an image appropriate for this very agrarian community painting a familiar scene of a sower that they can all relate to. Lots of heads nod around the crowd, I imagine, as Jesus starts. They can picture the dusty feet of that farmer out in his field, reaching into a satchel, probably made of animal skin, and pulling out the small golden grains, and then casting them out in a kind of sweeping dance-like motion, casting these seeds out, knowing that not all of the seed will find receptive soil, not all of it will take root, not all of it will result in an abundant harvest. And in doing so, Jesus isn't telling them anything revolutionary or new. Instead, it's an acknowledgement of something they know well from their real-life experience. You cast out seeds, and some of it will grow, but some of it will not. It will get snatched up, or it'll land on unreceptive soil. So the crowd then is left to interpret and to understand the meaning of this parable. How might the story of the sower and the seeds be like the word? The word of God, the logos in Greek, that's sown 
intending to proclaim some insight, some epiphany about the meaning of this kingdom of God that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God that arrives in his arrival among us. And more importantly, what prevents some of those seeds from taking root? And what can we do to prevent that from happening? Now, 2,000 years later, I suspect that some of us have those same questions, too, in the experience of our own lives, of seeing seed sown but never taking root, never thriving. It's symbolic of the kinds of distractions and disappointments, the dis-ease of sin and brokenness that we experience as well. We know those places in our own lives where we seek to sow seeds of the good news of Jesus Christ, for example. The seeds of salt and light, of love in the way of Jesus Christ in the world. Only to see those efforts denied by robbing birds and rocky soil and wretched weeds. For we people of faith, reading this story of faith, we know all the ways that we've heard and responded to the call to put ourselves out there as Christ-centered disciples in the world, embracing and embodying those kingdom values in the way of Jesus. And we know that so often we find ourselves sowing seeds but getting discouraged when they don't find receptive soil, when they don't take root or blossom. For example, I see... Many of you who are working in places, organizations, or businesses, or companies, and trying to lead in a way that shares your witness, and yet you encounter places where profits reign over people, where quantity matters more than quality, where there seems to be a race to the bottom line, and market forces beyond your control change the dynamics of those places in ways that don't seem faithful to the gospel. I see many of you, for example, out in social media. A lot of us are friends on Facebook. And I see you out there sowing seeds, trying to elevate the conversation, inviting dialogue, listening and seeking understanding, striving for the common good, only in response to have the trolls of partisanship slinging mud back to you in our political and cultural and even religious arenas. Perhaps most heartbreaking, I see many of you, parents and grandparents, who have sown seeds for years of faith and values and beliefs into the lives of your children and grandchildren, and yet discover today that they are apathetic at best and maybe even antagonistic or estranged at worst, in rejecting your hopes for their own spiritual journey in their lives. And let's be honest, some of us are those kids too. <laughs> We've perhaps been a disappointment in seasons in our lives of our own parents and grandparents. Because the truth is that the sower seeks to sow seeds in us, not only through us. Those seeds sometimes encounter ground that is rocky and hard, and inhospitable. It doesn't seem like the word of God, the good news, can find a place in our hearts to take root, maybe because of our brokenness or our busyness, our distractions or our dismay that create an unreceptive environment so that it's hard for us to pay attention to what God's trying to say to us or what God's trying to do in us or through us in the world. 
I've had my own experience of that in a season of my life. Many years ago, when I lived in Chicago, I was still trying to make sense of the death of my dad, following a brief and brutal battle with cancer. And in trying to reconcile and make sense of that, I then, shortly afterwards, had a major health scare. And all of that combined together kind of set me a little adrift and untethered. It shook me, put me off my path a bit. I started to question some of the basic foundations of my own life, my identity. Who am I? What am I about? What am I doing in this world? Where am I heading? And what of any of it even matters anymore? I'm not quite sure how to name that time in my life a a kind of disappointment or depression, some kind of disorientation. But I can tell you what it felt like. It was sort of like a heavy stone on my chest every day that just made it hard to breathe, hard to move. It was uh, kind of a fog, and I seemed to be going through the motions for a while. Eventually, one morning, I decided I needed to try to do something to get back on track, to try to reclaim some meaning and purpose in my life. And yes, even Christians have those seasons in their lives too. And so, like any middle-aged man, I do what a middle-aged man does to find meaning and purpose in life. I went to the Home Depot. (laughs) There, I thought, will be answers. I got up early on a Saturday morning, I drove to Home Depot, I parked in the parking lot, I didn't even make it into the store, I stopped outside at the food cart, you know the one I'm talking about, and I got a bratwurst. It was 10 o'clock in the morning, I wasn't even hungry, but I knew that a journey of finding meaning and purpose in life had to start with grilled meat. (laughs) And so I got a bratwurst, I ate it, I finally made my way into the doors, and started pacing up and down the aisles, like an exotic cat in a zoo cage, just pacing back and forth, looking for answers, not finding any immediately, despite the many well-intended offerings of help from the orange-bibbed employees. But what was I going to say? Do you have anything for an existential crisis here on aisle five? No, I didn't think so. After about an hour of wandering around, I finally decided to head out to the garden section. I thought maybe if I buy a useless and expensive piece of equipment, that might be the answer. A chainsaw or a snowblower or something. I looked around for a little while, and then up in the front near the cash register, I saw a clearance sign. That always gets my attention. 50% off, it said. So I wandered up and I peered over the edge of this bin and inside I discovered flower bulbs. Daffodils and tulips, lots of varieties, lots of different colors. This is the answer, I thought. And I bought a hundred of them. I had never planted a bulb in my life. Honestly, I'd never even really gardened in my entire life but I bought a hundred bulbs. I bagged them up, I put them in the car, I drove home. I didn't even go upstairs to put on my faded outdoor jeans. I just rooted around in the garage for a while until I found a little hand shovel. 
and I immediately went out to the yard and got on my knees in the dirt beds around the edge of the lawn, and I started digging. It was early November in Chicago. The ground was hard, nearly frozen, and so it took strength and perseverance to break up the soil, to disturb and dislodge the soil so that it could be open and receptive to these bulbs. Oh, I thought there's something that feels familiar about what's happening here. Several hours later, because it takes a long time to plant 100 bulbs, <laughs> I got up and patted the dirt around the beds and looked around, and honestly, it all looked the same as when I had started. Nothing was different. There was no promise, of course, that day of a bouquet of flowers or an abundant harvest. And there wouldn't be tomorrow either, or not for a long time. Instead, soon the leaves would fall and cover the ground, and then snow would come and cover the leaves. And it, it would take a long time, I knew, God's time, before those flowers would bloom. And while I hoped that one day they would magnificently and breathtakingly bloom, that was not really the moral of the story for me that day. Instead, the thing is, I didn't have to wait for those first shoots to come up through the ground in April. Instead, even as I finished that task, the Holy Spirit began to speak to me, reaffirming and reclaiming the promise of those bulbs, even as soon as they were planted. And I was reminded again that the sower keeps sowing, never tired, never discouraged, and the soil keeps receiving, and God is still at work, whether or not, or even before we can see the results of God's intended plan. The sower, the Christ, continues to sow, and the Holy Spirit of God continues to do her work, both magical and mysterious, so that those seeds will continue to be nurtured and will indeed someday grow and thrive, even though we can't yet see the result. We can, we can stand with a sense of hope and hopefulness that in the kingdom of God, God never gives up. We can trust that the sower is never discouraged, never quits. The dance goes on, the seeds are shared, the cycle continues again and again and again. This morning, I decided to include those last couple of verses from near the end of chapter 4 about the mustard plants for two reasons. The first is that while I still don't know a lot about gardening, I know enough now to know the difference between a perennial and an annual. And mustard plants are mostly annuals, which means that that work of planting has to be done every year. There's no single planting, no single moment of inspiration or dedication or exaltation or salvation. It's not a one-and-done-for-life choice or experience. Instead, it's an ongoing process every year of planting. It is an ongoing process of the work that continues again and again. And so in those mustard plants, a reminder to us that even in those moments that can be depressing and discouraging, the seeds will continue to be sown again and again through us and because of us 
but ultimately because of God. Because of God's faithfulness in every season of new birth and new life and new hope. And then I love one other detail I discovered there. And in case you didn't notice it, did you catch who is the beneficiary, according to Jesus, of those mustard plants? And no, it's not the guy putting mustard on his bratwurst at Home Depot. Though that's a good answer. No, who does Jesus say is the beneficiary of the mustard plants? The birds. The birds who make nests and find shade in those plants. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that reference to birds are the very same birds, those robbing birds, who were snatching up seeds at the beginning of this text. Those same birds are now given sanctuary, a place of rest and renewal. The very same beings that robbed the seeds, that denied the possibility of deep roots and an abundant harvest, even they are the ones who are now the beneficiaries, transformed and welcomed home by Jesus and these plants. And in that connection, what a profound gift to us to know that even in those things in our lives that rob us of the harvest, those things within us and because of us that deny the abundance of God's word, providing peace and justice, strength and hope in the kingdom, even those things are eventually renewed and restored because of God's amazing grace. Oh, thanks be to God. So friends, this morning, Jesus invites us too to continue to listen Listen, all you who have ears to hear. May we have Christ's invitation to sow and be receptive, to be opened up, dislodged, disturbed, so that we might receive the word of God sown in us. And so that together, we all might experience a 30 or 60 or 100-fold harvest of joy and beauty, of grace and love for us all. Amen.